sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have myself, Jacob, as your presenter today. And we have... Chloe. Hi. Good morning. Yep. So, Chloe, um, this is going to be Chloe's first time in the live studio today, um, taking um, the place of Zane, although there might be times where we have all three of us on the, on the program. Um, so, yeah, hope everyone gives a good welcome to... Well, our listeners give a good welcome to Chloe this morning. And now... I guess just before I go into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And of course, Green Left Radio and FreeCR will always support um, the fight um, for sovereignty and, and decolonisation. Okay. So, now that that's, um, now, the main kind of thing, um, just to, we have a quite a, we have a good, um, packed program this week, so we have a number of interviews all kind of lined up. I'm going to be playing an interview from a Green Left podcast, an interview with Lee Tang, which was done, um, conducted by Peter Boyle, um, about this whole, it's basically about a whole environmental issue um, related to Malaysia. And I'll give a bit of an introduction before we play that. But that'll be the kind of first interview we're kind of going to be playing. And then um, we're also going to be having an interview with Alan Jennings later on, who is a Green Left journalist about the links between the Myanmar um, coup um, and the military's sort of economic interests. Now... And then um, Chloe lined up another guest. Um, would you want to introduce? Oh, yeah. We, we also Chloe lined up another guest that we've um, later on at 7:45 a.m. Um, Keith Quayle, um, who um, Chloe will introduce later when we interview. Okay. Now the fair. Um, yeah. So what? What is the kind of main news story you want to kind of discuss um, first, um, Chloe? Oh, I was thinking that we could, you know, maybe congratulate the um, McCormick workers on their on their win um, with the picket line that they've been. I think it's over a hundred days that they've been on strike. Is that correct? Yes. Um. So yeah. they've been on strike for like the past six weeks. So yeah, they've um just recently. I think it was yesterday or mm-hmm. the day before. Um. They basically had their uh, had a victory, and. 
what's interesting, I think, is they basically won a 9% kind of pay increase over, um, over the next five years or three years, three years um, which is actually um, better, I think, than what they were demanding initially, because I think they initially went on strike on the basis of demanding a three to 4% increase. Um, so 9% increase um, over the next three years is actually um, a good and in fact, not net, it's um it's definitely a posit, a very positive victory. And I guess we'd like to congratulate all the workers who have been you know there on the picket line, and some of them twenty four seven, and keeping that um keeping that going. And I think you know they've they've managed to w- win. And I think it's another kind of example of how you know collective organisation when workers come together they can um achieve victories. And also to the 1,250 people who actually donated and, um, you know, to the unions, the UWU, um, you know, everyone who supported those workers on the ground, um, you know, did interviews with them, um, you know, stood with them um, on that picket line. Um, yeah, congratulations to everybody. It's a, it's a big win. It, it was also just, you know, also maintaining the, the, con- the conditions that, you know, the workers worked so hard to um, actually achieve. So they, they won those um those conditions, but yeah, they, there's still a lot of work to be done, and you know, technically, they should have actually been able to get uh, better conditions than the, what mm. was won. Well, the offer that has been offered by management is includes a retaining of all previous conditions the com- um the company wanted to remove, including the four day week roster. Um, so that is actually a victory, and then the other thing they get on is a five thousand dollar sign on bonus. Um, so basically, I think that's essentially, essentially what that means is, um, as a condition of the workers accepting their jobs again, because they were on strike, they'll get a $5,000 bonus on top of that. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, I think that's it's, awesome. it's yeah. definitely a good, um, a very positive victory. And because there has been sometimes in the past where there has been some union victories that are really in some sense only kind of partial victories where, they only just get a little better than probably what they would have gotten, um, um, than what they probably could have gotten. And I think the fact that they've got something, a deal, a, a deal where it essentially is better than what they were with previously, um, I think is, is a good, a, a very positive kind of development. All right. Now, I guess the next, um, just trying to keep up, but just been trying to keep up with, um, what's been going on in this past day, um, there has been just one sort of particular announcement um, that has been kind of happening, and that is has been um, the whole this whole kind of discussion around the vaccine kind of delivery in um, Australia. Now, to start off um, a bit of a discussion, um, and we probably won't have enough depth to go really into depth of this. Basically, there has been. Um, there has been kind of some evidence um, that the AstraZeneca, which is the AstraZeneca is sort of the main kind of vaccination that the majority of the population is getting compared to the um, the Pfizer, which is a more advanced, um, more effective kind of vaccine, but it's also harder to kind of produce. So basically they found that this AstraZeneca um, vaccine is correlated to a very rare kind of side effect of, for young people, um, i.e. blood clots, um, which, you know, is a risky health condition. Um, now, the evidence has sort of actually shown, just reading an article on ABC, the chances of getting it 
from the AstraZeneca vaccine are still very rare. In fact, probably the benefit, the argument probably is the benefits of getting the AstraZeneca vaccine probably still outweigh these potential risks because all the, because no vaccine comes without side effects. Um, but the government has um, made a kind of decision that they will be, um, that they will change their sort of recommendation and basically young people, people under 50 will now get the, will, will now be recommended that they get the Pfizer vaccine, if I'm pronouncing it kind of correctly. Um, but yeah, this comes in, in response to the fact that the European Union has halted some production of the AstraZeneca vaccine in response to this potential kind of health concern. So I think that's just a, just one sort of headline news story. There's not much really to say politically about it. Um, other than I think that it's, I think just to make one kind of brief comment on, on some of the politics of what, what's been happening is it's sort of interesting that, um, the Morrison government has been kind of over-promising um, this kind of delivery of the kind of vaccine when it's clearly all the reports suggest that Australia is well below distribution. Um, and it's sort of, I think it's sort of, as I sort of noted in a previous sort of program, I sort of noted that the Morrison government was probably using the delivery of the vaccine uh, to basically prop up itself um, for the up next upcoming election, basically mm-hmm. trying to take all credit for delivering the vaccine, etc. And I think it's just amusing that they've fallen way below expectations. Um, in fact, there's um, countries like the United States are far more ahead of us in the vaccine distribution. But to be fair, I think probably considering the state of where the US is at with COVID-19, they probably need the vaccine more. And um I, I, I would argue that, you know, Australia, um, doesn't necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world, um, if we can't, if we don't get, um, if we're not, if we don't get, um, 100%, um, if we don't get the vaccine program underway as quick as possible. Like, I just don't think it's necessary, necessary. Everything is kind of open right now. I guess it's more, there's more kind of balancing act for, capitalist interest because there's an interest for the capitalist class in making sure this vaccine program goes as quickly as possible because they want to start opening up for international travel etc but of course as um the new zealand experience has kind of shown uh opening up international travel is not as actually simple um especially when there's still lots of other countries who um, are still having um waves of covid19 cases now, is there any other story you wanted to kind of mention, Chloe, for the next five minutes before we play? Uh, not at this stage, Jacob. Okay. Well, um, I might just go play um, a quick um, announcement, and maybe we might play. We'll play our our podcast, um, this pre-recorded interview, a bit early, um, and might just give us some time to plan out some more um, programming. So. I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, You're listening to Green Left Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434-136-501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. 
You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it's seven and twelve a.m. And now I'm going to play. I'm going to be playing a special podcast and interview from Green Left, and basically this is about um, a, a particular issue around Australian company Linus plans toxic waste dump in Malaysia. Australia, and to give a bit of background on this, Australian rare um, earth mining and refining company, Linus, has applied for a licence to build a permanent dump for its toxic waste in a pristine rainforest in Malaysia after piling up a mountain of toxic and partially radioactive waste near its controversial refinery near the city of Kontan. Peter, Green Left's Peter Boyle um, spoke to Lee Tan, a veteran environmental researcher and campaigner with AidWatch. And you can read more about this issue in the pages of Green Left. There's an article um, titled Linus Plans Permanent Radioactive Waste in Malaysia. And that you can find that up on the Green Left kind of website. Um, but for now, I'll play this um, pre-recorded interview, which will go on for the next 25 minutes. And um, yeah, hope um, listeners um, enjoy you are listening to Green Left Radio on 855 AM on 3CR.org.au. One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast. We give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Australian rare earth mining and refining company Linus took advantage of the poor regulatory framework and corruption in Malaysia to build a toxic rare earth refinery in Gebeng near the city of Kuantan in Malaysia in 2012. Despite a broad and you know, quite big opposition from many local residents and environmentalists in Malaysia and in Australia, the project went ahead. But now the refinery has created a mountain of toxic waste, including radioactive material such as thorium and heavy metals like lead. Rare earths are used in electronics and wind turbines, catalytic converters, electric and hybrid motor vehicles, as well as in military equipment. And Linus is trying to ride the wave of strategic tension between rich Western states and China by promoting itself on its corporate website as the only producer of scale of separated rares outside China. Well, I spoke to Li Tan, a long-time campaigner against the Linus refinery and a former cancer researcher. She now works as a campaigner and a researcher with AidWatch. Yes, um, this is what Linus is trying to do. Back in uh, 2012, when it was applying for the operating license in Malaysia, Linus had given two undertakings to remove the radioactive waste from Malaysia if there is no suitable location for it over there. Now, Linus has always wanted to keep the waste in Malaysia because of the lax 
um, environmental safeguards over there. Um, whereas in, in Australia and other advanced country, um, due to the very long half-life of the radionuclides that are found in the, in the radioactive waste, um, you know, they require very stringent um, regulatory type control in um, advanced country. But in Malaysia, the Atomic um, Energy Licensing Board had basically, you know, accommodated liners with hardly any standard at all. Um, it is a problem because even in, like, in a country like Australia, which is especially in um, the arid desert area, um, you know, proposal for radioactive waste arm like that um, put forward by Linus for low level radioactive um, waste had been um, rejected for over 30 years, both by experts and also the community. Um, and yet, you know, in a wet tropical country like Malaysia, with, you know, huge, massive monsoon deluge every year, um, and in a rainforest, um, I mean, this is what Linus is proposing to do, to carve out a last, one of the last remaining remnant of a pristine rainforest for its shallow radioactive waste dump. Um, lie only with two millimeter thick or thin uh, HDE plastic. And that's like our garbage bag type of plastic um, we're talking about. Um, that's, not, that's not acceptable. Um, the rain intrusion or water intrusion, soil erosion, landslide, um, and all of the other factors will not guarantee that the radioactive materials and the heavy toxic, um, the toxic heavy metal from leaching out. This, this, uh, this site, um, I understand it is uh, quite close to uh, the heads of uh, uh, tributaries yeah. to the yes. Kwantan River. Yeah, there are two, yes, there are two rivers which is linked to the water flow from this particular site. The forest itself, Bukit Katam, is actually a catchment for the greater Kuantan River. Um, the water flows from the forest into Sungai Ara, which is the river directly linked to this, um, uh, the proposed site. It then joins with another river called Sungai Riau, uh, and Sungai Real then flow into Sungai Kuantan that travels through the city of Kuantan into the South China Sea. Um, and along the way, there are two water treatment plants. Um, in Kuantan, they actually tap river water for, um, uh, you know, uh, drinking to, to supply the city. Um, so 90% of the Kuantan population will essentially be drinking water that potentially be contaminated with um, toxic elements 
from the Linus uh, wisdom if it is accepted. Now, Linus has always made a lot. Linus and its supporters have always made a lot of the fact that this is supposedly low-level radioactive waste. Uh, what are the dangers that arise yeah. uh, from from okay. such waste? Sure. According to established international guidelines and standards, there is practically no safe dose of exposure to radi radiation, particular, particularly um, to radioactive elements like thorium and uranium that are low level in terms of its radioactivity, but has, um, you know, in its decaying chain, very high energy, what they call daughters, like radium, uh, radium, radon, polonium, and so on and so forth. Um, and because they have long half-life, they are decaying or radioactive for a long time. We're talking about billions of years, which means that, um, you know, they, they forever um, hazardous. And the danger comes from the ionizing radiation. And that is when the particles um, that are radioactive enter into living cells, be it plant, animal, or human it actually started to decay in the cell or in the body of um, living um, things. And it will damage the DNA, the building block of our cells. And if the dose is high enough, and remember they are cumulative over one's lifetime, and it can be even passed down to the future generation, through eggs and sperms and so on and so forth. Um, so in the environment, they're cumulative. They won't go away. Um, so once it is released from the waste mass, it can enter into the environment and concentrate it somewhere else. And that those can increase through time. It's all very complex, but the Malaysian regulators are very ill-equipped um, and also politically overpowered to actually regulate uh, Linus and his waste. Plus Linus is kind of play up his um, geopolitical importance. And that kind of had intimidated um, even the most sympathetic, um, decent bureaucrats in Malaysia, including the former environment minister, um, under the PH, the Pakatan Harapan coalition, Yobiin herself, who enjoy a pretty high profile as quite an effective environmental minister. But, you know, even she felt bullied by Linus many times in the past. I understand that <laughs> while Linus likes to, to, to present itself as providing uh, the West with an alternative uh, to dependence on China for 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 rare earth products. This yes. th there's there's more to the story than this. This may not be uh, you know a very strong argument in reality. Is this correct? Yes, it, that's the press, that's the image Linus had basically play up and spin 
um, to get to gain traction and to gain funding initially from the Japanese government. Um, at that time, China and Japan were um, in conflict over the Shinjuku Island. I think it's called it's called something else, Diaoyutai or something, uh, somewhere in the East China Sea. Um, so yeah, and because of that conflict, J Japan was trying to show China it has um, an alternate supplier of rare earth. And that was at a time when Linus was looking for funds to build the Malaysian plant. It's around 2010, 2011. Um, and without the Japanese funding, Linus wouldn't have got the plant in, in, um, in uh, Malaysia up and going um, up to today. And so Linus is still owing Japan um, the loan. And, and again, you know, that's also showing that Linus is not that commercially profitable business. Otherwise, it would have paid off the loan by now. Um, and that's number one, playing the geopolitics. And then later on in recent years, under the Trump administration, when U.S. and China got engaged in a trade war, Linus once again play that geopolitical politi um, yeah, um, conflict by talking up itself as being a non-Chinese uh, supplier of rare earth. Um, and of course, you know, because of that, it's got a small grant for research um, from, the, from Pentagon. Again, you know, that's actually a couple of lies there from Linus in that sense, or a couple of um, hidden truths that had not been told. Number one, Linus is only a predominantly light rare earth uh, producer. And, and what it produces is not the pure rare earth elements. To get it purified and refined, Linus has to go through Japan and China to do that. And so while criticizing and, and um, you know, China for being a monopoly, Linus is also dependent on China to buy its rare earth um, oxides. They crude rare earth. Um, they're not pure rare earth elements. Um, to keep it, you know, cash, uh, to, to keep um, the cash flow going for the company. So that's one of the issues. Another issue is, um, um, yeah, so that, that's actually like two. Yeah, first is that it hasn't got that much um, heavy rare earth. Okay, that's, that's the point. With Pentagon, they're looking for heavy rare earth for their military technological <laughs> development. But, uh, but Linus has very little. I'll say less than 10% if, if that. Of heavy rare earth in its um, deposit. Plus, its quantum plant is not actually ex extracting even the crude rare earth um, efficiently. And because of that, it is producing at least one and a half times more radioactive waste um, as compared to its original blueprint um, figures. So there's a lot of... Um, hidden truth that hasn't actually come out. And eventually we'll try and document all of that 
you know, backup effects. Mm. Um, to show up exactly what this Linus uh, Red Earth company is like, and also to show some of the um, uh, problems it has created for Malaysia and the environment in Malaysia. Now, campaigns have been waged for many years, both in Malaysia and and in Australia, and I guess you would say internationally, uh, against this Linus um, uh, project. Uh, but uh, I guess a lot of uh, the Malaysian part of the campaign, cam- many of the campaigners there would have placed uh, or looked with great hope on the former Pakatan Harapan government uh, Indeed, when it got did. elected, you know. So yes. what what is the... What is your, uh, you know, what is your, uh, uh, if you like, summing up of that period? You know, how much was their mm. hopes uh, met and how much were they dashed? Okay. Firstly, Pakaran Harapan um, was lacking in experience in playing politics. Secondly, we have Mahathir Muhammad being the culprit in undermining many of the um, Pakatan Harapan um, promises. Um, and and uh, Mahathir's appointment of Yobiyin as the environment minister had some, had a lot to do with um, him needing to control, you know, this particular portfolio, ministerial portfolio. And also Mahathir's um, what do you call that again? Um, packing the, the uh, cabinet with mostly Brasatu, um, uh, MPs, um, and also Amana MPs, and lesser of the PKR and DAP elected MPs is a problem, or, you know, and, um, and Mahathir's close alliance with Japan is another problem. Japan needed Linus to survive, you know, partly to pay back its loan. Secondly, to keep um, China at bay, at least on the surface, um, you know, to, to show that it is not entirely relying on China to be the sole supplier of rare earth. Um, yeah, so that close alliance with Mahatel had made him interfere with the decision of Environment Minister uh, uh, Yin. She, in her executive review recommendation, stated very clearly that if Linus cannot remove the waste, um, then, you know, the plant will be shut down. But Mahathir kind of dug in his heel by saying that nobody's going to accept the waste. Really, it's not Malaysia's problem. It is Linus' problem. Malaysia should just compel Linus to remove the waste and put pressure on Linus to deal with it. Um, yeah, and, and Linus is so good at playing geopolitics. You know, why can't it use its geopolitical kind of strategy to deal with the waste? Um, yeah, and instead, you know, Yobin has to make that kind of rather weak and embarrassing uh, move to try and get Australia to take aid and this and every other thing. When years ago, Australia had already made it very clear that it will not take another country's radioactive waste. Um, 
So because of that, there was a, a soulmate. Um, and so we went back to Malaysia again to find a location for the waste dump. Um, yeah, so, but we have to prove that Malaysia has no safe location for the waste dump now. And that's exactly what we're doing through this EIA review process to show how um, risky and hazardous it is for liners to try and set up a, a radioactive waste dump in a rainforest area um, yeah, that, are pro that is prone to erosion and landslides. So are you, are you basically saying that under the Pakatan Harapan government, eventually mm. uh, it conceded uh, that um, the waste could stay in Malaysia as long as they found uh, a safe yeah. permanent yeah. dump. Well, that was always been that that was always been the um, kind of a license condition right from the uh, Najib's uh, Barisan National. It was written in the original um, license condition anyway. Mm. But um, but Pakatan Harapan was trying to find a way to have the waste removed by forcing Linus to deal with it, remove it by September 2019 or uh, the face license um, suspension. Uh, and then um, Mahathir intervened and it became, you know, like looking for location again mm. um, in the renewed license, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So what's the current situation is the waste is piling up. Yes, Very the waste is right next up. to the plant, Absolutely. and actually, in 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 a in a and it's in a much more hazardous situation. Is that correct? It is. I yeah, it is in a hazardous situation. Whether it's worse or what, the the new location won't be any better. In fact, it's worse because first you have to cut, you know, lock the forest, and then you have to cover out land to put in the waste and then you have to transport the waste um, and literally you're scattering the waste further and wider, a mm. few and that's really not acceptable for radioactive waste um, yeah in the first place Linus Waste Management was incoherent and is a mess and in Australia it would probably not be acceptable like that for a populated area like Gabing Balok area, which it is uh, where it is located right now, um, which is why a lot of mining projects are in remote desert area. Uh, and of course, you know, it affects local Aboriginal <coughs> people. Um, but, you know, in Australia, local Aboriginal people has very little political power, even though many of the communities had been protesting against anything hazardous, mining and so on and so forth. But, you know, we know the story. Organization in Malaysia like Friends of the Earth and also Safe Malaysia Stopliners, SMSL, been busy, you know, putting submission, going through the EIA, and AWatch is supporting them too through through my work. Um, and and we've got a few international um, expert lineup to put in their submission. Um, yeah, so. You know, along that, we felt that it was important that the government um, is put under the microscope and be pressured into knowing that there will be 
widespread international knowledge and uh, watching uh, uh, and, and um, people, you know, watching development. Um, yeah, as I might have mentioned earlier, the nuclear regulator in, in Malaysia has actually lowered the um, waste classification standard by allowing liners to um, dump the waste in a shallow landfill when it should be a proper radioactive waste dump um, that has to meet much more stringent engineering um, design and standard and location selection and so on and so forth. Um, so this, this um, online submission is really important. The more people we get to sign this submission, they can tailor it, um, you know, to, to reflect their views um, an opinion that uh, is also possible through the online too. Um, yeah, it's actually really on top of the, you know, professional submission, the civil society submission. It is a campaigning tool um, to try and put more pressure on uh, Malaysia and also for Linus to see that, look, they can't just go on exploiting Malaysia um, you know, this way and playing ge geopolitics. Um, and this particularly, this particular EIA review is one avenue we campaign against Linus, um, and is very exploitative modus operandi. But later, we will do more based on its, um, ongoing track record and problematic, um, practices in Malaysia and also its um, international geopolitical spin. Um, so it won't be the end of the story, but we hope the EIA won't be accepted um, anyway. Otherwise, there will be court challenges and so on and so forth. That was Lee Tan, an environmental campaigner and researcher and a veteran campaigner against the toxic Linus rare earth refinery in Malaysia. My name is Peter Boyle, and this was a report for Greenleft. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio and you're just listening to an interview with Lee Tan um, that was conducted by Peter Boyle from Green Left about the Australian company's Linus, um, which is a mining company's plans to dump toxic waste in a part of Malaysia. And you can read more about the issue if you go on to greenleft.org.au. Now, before our second interview, I thought I would like to highlight um, an article from Green Left. Basically, Labor, the Labor Party had its recent, um, just recently had its national conference um, over March the 30th to the 31st. And basically, they essentially up, um, updated their platform for the next um, upcoming federal election. Now, Alex Bainbridge writes here um, for Green Left um, that Labor's, with the title, Labor's Policy Conference Fails to Put Morrison Under Pressure. And 
he started he started um, the article by arguing that the Labor Party's kind of stage managed policy conference was a clear demonstration that um, that leader Anthony Albanese's plans to continue the party's small target strategy, offering working people very little in a pandemic recession and quote emergency. And there, there's basically a few kind of things um, that came out of this national conference. Essentially, the party has really, the Labor Party has really abandoned any meaningful climate action. Mm-hmm. Labor decided to scrap its ridiculously low 2030 um, climate targets altogether and confirmed its support for the federal government's COVID-19 um, gas recovery plan. It even passed a motion supporting um, the coal industry along with the rest of the mining sector. The fossil fuel industry, cheered on by the pro-gas Australian Workers' Union, has been pressuring Labor former frontbencher Joel Fitzgibbon. The support for the um, pro-fossil fuel motions showed how successful that effort has been. And, you know, this capitulation... Um, was kind of disguised by a number of kind of token kind of announcements um, about subsidies um, for electric electric cars and vague talk about becoming a, a renewable energy superpower. Promoting the phasing in of electric, electric vehicles, albeit private ones, is not wrong, but it is not the same as a um, as a as a, a push to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Expanding public transport. And promoting cycling would have had a, a, a bigger impact on emissions, um, Alex argues. And, and But, of course, in any case, um, this whole policy by the Labor Party um, that they've adopted for their national conference really just falls far short of what is needed. We actually need, as Alex argues here, uh, urgent society-wide push to reduce emissions as fast as possible in the next five to ten years. And nothing in Labor's new um, platform points to such an approach. And they've also, the Labor Party in this national conference is also arguing that um, they're going to be pushing, uh, they're making a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. But of course, as we've kind of argued several times on um, a Green Left radio program, this is actually a recipe for climate catastrophe. Even if it's achieved, it is way too little, way too late. It is also a meaningless target in the context of a three-year election cycle that postpones any action into a nebulous far-off future. And also, um, the other thing about the, their policy platform is it fails to really offer any alternative vision regarding the transition to new sustainable jobs for those currently working in the fossil fuel sector, the expansion of workers' rights, elevating property, poverty and um, homelessness, or redistributing wealth, which the mining... Um, bosses in particular have been accumulating despite the um, the pandemic. And if elected, a Labor is not bound to implement any of these policies. Its shock loss in the 2019 elections was explained by Conservatives within and without as the party as having been too ambitious, offering too much reform. So essentially, what are the funny kind of implications of that is, so we've just spent a bit of time critiquing what they've kind of adopted as their policy platform for the next federal election, mm. but even the federal government, um, even the Labor Party, when it comes to a federal election, they're arguing that we're not even going with the full platform of what we've already um, argued for at the next um, federal election because basically the reason why they lost in 2019 was because they were too ambitious. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's lot... Basically, I think, you know, there's nothing... 
as the, the kind of article kind of summarises, really this whole, the Labor conference, um, the ALP conference has probably been really nothing but a sham, really. Um, and it really just shows that I think the Labor Party are just as, um, are pretty much no real, don't really have any meaningful difference, um, from, um, from the Liberal Party. Although that said, I mean, I, I probably, it's still preferable to have Labor Party in power over the Liberals, but, you know, it's just, I think, the, the, clearly their conference, I think, just falls short of any, any sort of real change. So, yeah. Anyway, I might just go conclude that there. I'll just go play a quick announcement and then we'll be going on to our second interview for the program. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio and for listeners information you can um, we actually have a podcast available on the ALP National Conference up on um, the Green Left website which goes into more detail about some of these issues that we were just talking about. But yeah, I'll just go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio and we'll move on to our second interview for the program. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Okay, so this is Sheba. And so is this. And this. Sheba, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30 a.m. for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, on the line, actually, I'm going to pass it on to Chloe. Um, we've got our second interview for the program, and I'll pass it on to Chloe to introduce. Thanks, Jacob. I'll just start by um, saying that five Aboriginal people have died in custody in the last two months in what were preventable deaths. Um, every year, Aboriginal people continue to die in custody and are subjected to racial profiling. They are bullied by police and thrown in jail, often for very trivial reasons. Today, we are speaking with Keith Quayle about racist institutions like the police and prison complex, transformative justice, mutual aid and abolition, and what we can all do in our collectives and our communities to ensure Black Lives Matter. Uh, Keith Quayle is uh, uh, a Malay Gapa 
Bakinji gay man raised on Darug country. He is currently on a corrections order until August 2022. Keith is the founder of the New South Wales Community Advocates for Prisoners, a member of Pride in Protest, uh, SWAP, which is Sex Workers Outreach Project, and Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Members Committee. Keith is also currently on the Trans and Gender Diverse Criminal Justice System Advisory Council and the Prisoner um, Interagency Advocacy Subcommittee. Keith joins us now. Thank you uh, for your time so early this morning, Keith. That's okay. Thanks. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Sorry, you're just a little bit quiet there. Um, I, Keith, I just wanted to start by reminding uh, listeners that There have been um, almost 500 Indigenous deaths in custody since the Royal Commission handed down its findings in 1991. Uh, No police officer or authority has ever been held criminally responsible for the death of an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in custody in that time. And, Keith, we know the system is racist. We um, know the intention from the beginning of invasion was genocide. Uh, there needs to be urgent action on this, um, especially following these um, five deaths in custody over the last two months. Uh, what would you, would you be able to just talk about why this urgent situation is not being taken seriously? Um, you know, is this still part of the same genocidal agenda? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, to answer that simply, I'll say yes. I think that it's a continuation of, you know... Um, colonial invasion and uh, harmful gender norms. Uh, I think that, you know, we see our political independence hasn't changed the conditions and systematic powers, you know, deliberately avoid, um, you know, having conversations, um, you know, outside of themselves. Um, You know, it's so invested... The state is so invested in punitive punishment. And, um, you know, as you've seen... With the new Circo um, Parkley facility, mm-hmm. um, you know we can't engage with them because the state, you know, they're, they're not they're not interested in, in in having a dialogue around transformative justice with us. Um, so you know, I, I think the, the reason why this urgent this urgent issue isn't you know being taken seriously by government, I think, is because um, they won't allow us at the table. I, uh, and, and also on the other end of the spectrum, I think, you know, um, we need to get organised, like at the left wing, you know, and I, I think in, you know, I'll go into it a bit further, you know, I think later on in the interview, but yeah, I think we really need to get organised in terms of mutual aid and what we're going to do for each other, um, in, in, you know, um, away from the state. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Keith, for that. Um, the... The Black Lives Matter movement, it really had a, an impact on First Nations peoples, um, First Nations LGBTQI uh, plus people and trans women of colour. And many people in society are now, you know, hopefully questioning whether policing and punishment and uh, prison should exist. And, you know, we know Aboriginal women, you know, they're reluctant to go to the police to ask for help if they are in danger. Um, you know, they risk facing even more 
danger and um, you know getting strip searched and arrested themselves or even having their children taken from them. Um, and also black trans women um, won't call the police to ask um, for help you know, if they're facing a violent situation because, you know, they too uh, risk getting violated or even killed. Um, and, yeah, non-binary communities already have, you know, ways of dealing with that violence in their lives and, you know, we should be talking to those um, communities. Um, you know, we can't really rely on this system that doesn't really deal justice to anybody, especially to First Nations people. So, Keith, you know, would you be able to just tell us uh, why it's so important that we move away from racist institutions like the police and the the prison industrial complex. You know why, like you mentioned before, um, uh, mutual aid. You know why funding should be removed from carceral institutions that exist just to control people and oppress uh, First Nations people. Um, you know why should we? You know we should be moving towards that transformative justice and abolition. Yeah, look, you know, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, since our lands, you know, were invaded, you know, we, we've had, you know, the, uh, you know, um, we've been forced into this idea of, you know, colonial-imposed, patriarchal, you know, normalised um, heterosexuality. And for Indigenous communities um, such as my own, you know, um, trans and gender-diverse people, you know, there wasn't that term back then, but... You know, if you look at uh, most Indigenous cultures around the world, you'll see that there's, you know, a two-spirited identity. And they're actually truth-tellers and healers. And I think that, you know, we really need to get back to our Indigenous, um, you know, epistemology because it predates that of Plato and of European ideas. And we need to listen to Indigenous peoples, assist them, befriend them, but also, us as Indigenous people, we need to respond to the own, our own violence within our own communities, you know, without punitive measures. Um, you know, and, you know, we, we normalise violence, not just in Indigenous communities, but even queer communities. We normalise violence such as, you know, reinforcing harmful gender norms, you know, um, privilege, you know, intersectionality, racism, you know, so... It's not just the state that is oppressing us, it's also ourselves. And, you know, until we, you know, um, as I mentioned before, get organised and and really have these, you know, deep conversations to do this deep work, um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I think about the generations of people, you know, that have been doing, you know, this transformative work, you know, without even knowing the title of it or mutual aid or, you know... Um, and, you know, people like immigrants, queer people of colour, Indigenous, you know, um, and disabled folks, sex workers, unhoused people, you know, the people have not really had anybody um, and they've never been able to rely on these folks outside of, you know, their own communities and social networks. So it's already it's already being done, you know. So I think, like, it's, it's not like a pie-in-the-sky dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just mention as well, like, David Spade... You know, he, uh, you know, um, they started the mutual aid projects, and you know, it's it's a form of political participation in which people take responsibility responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions, not just through symbolic acts or putting pressures on representatives and governments. And I think that's what you find with most protests, and and I, you'll find again, you know, coming up to this National Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. 
you know, there's no real mutual aid or, or any type of connecting. And I think that's something that we really need to address as left-wing uh, organisers and, and, and our collectives. You know, and, and um, mutual aid, it doesn't just have to happen like in disasters. It can happen, you know, um, we, we can make it happen in our, in our everyday lives, you know, but just by building relationships and, you know, assisting in, in advocating for... You know, prisoners that don't have the ability to advocate for themselves. Um, you know, and I think that that would, you know, if you look at the Oakland Power Projects, you know, they're, they're about strengthening people's skills to respond to emergencies. I think, you know, if you look at over in Bondi, they have the House Tola, which is like a, you know, a ambulance service for in, for Jewish people. You know, it's it's it's. It's all been the wheels already been spinning. It's just you know we're, we need to get we need to get our minds together and, and really think about the longevity on on this social success. And it's really personal for me, you know, because mm. you know my um, my cousin Mark Quayle, he was mentioned in the Royal Commissions, and you know all of these deaths, you know, the majority of these deaths are absolutely preventable and. You know, I, I really think that, again, I'll say, you know, we we need to move away from the state and, and rely on ourselves because I do believe we have the power to to change this. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, we just, like you said, we need to be um, better organised and um, connected with one another. Uh, maybe just time for, like, maybe a couple more questions, Keith, if that's all right. Um, so the, the criminal justice system or so-called justice system uh, you know, it's killing First Nations people, but um, it is even more brutal towards trans and gender diverse people. I think you touched on this. Um, would you be able to, you know, tell us a bit about the, organi- the organisation that you founded, the New South Wales Community Advocates for Prisoners? Uh, and maybe, you know, you could share, uh, you know, with our listeners some of the experiences that, you know, you've had being in p- police custody and having to deal with racist police. Sure, yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll start, you know, from my personal prison experience. I came into contact with the law, you know, around about 18, and um, but I, I didn't go into custody until, um, you know, August of 2014. So, um, you know, for me that was eye-opening, um, an eye-opening experience. Um, you know, for, for, for me also, I'm, I'm a six-foot-four black man, so apart from being queer, I'm also black, you know, so... If you know um, anything about custody, you know that you know um, that you know we're overrepresented in, in, in custody. So, you know, in, in terms of my time in custody, although it was really difficult for me, you know, coming out, um, you know, and, and and thinking about my time in there, you know, I, I think about my own privileges, you know, that, that I had that trans and gender diverse people didn't have, you know, and and so, you know, if you can imagine. Uh, you know, entering a really cold, damp, concrete place, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's a traumatic experience for anybody to go into custody, but for, you know, trans women primarily of colour that have to uh, enter male prison, um, you know, they have to live with the the daily um, reality, you know, of... Um, you know, being sexually abused, uh, physically abused, um, you know, and so on. So, 
I, 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 I'm the principal organiser of New South Wales Community Advocates, and yeah, so it's a volunteer service, and we're connected, uh, you know, with um, other mutual aid and abolition uh, and collectives out there. Um, so primarily, what we provide uh, is um, interpersonal support, uh, case management, prison support, such as pen pals. We build relationships. Um, you know, with people through the lens of transformative justice. So, um, you know, we're not interested in what what they what crime they committed. We're just interested in, in you know welcoming them back into the community and and really supporting them um, and assisting you know in getting them advocates. Um, you know, and and survive really. You know. Thanks. Kim. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, you you were sorry. I just cut you off. No, I was just thinking. Did I answer all your questions? I think <laughs> you. Yeah, I think you did. I, I, Jacob, did you want to ask anything? Um. Well, I'll just go. I'll maybe I'll just go. Um. Ask. I guess the kind of last sort of planned kind of question we're going to kind of ask because I think we're running a bit of our time. We've got to conclude. I guess the interview. Um. There's going to be, I guess, yeah. a National Day of Action um, tomorrow. I know um, there's going to be a rally happening right. in Sydney um, and Melbourne. And, um, yeah, so if you want to give you a bit of opportunity to speak about the National Day of Action, why it's important to support, and then talk about, you know, what are some other things that people can be doing to support um, Indigenous rights um, and, you know, encompassing all the kind of things we've kind of been discussing up to this point. I'm so sorry. There's um, these people that have just come. Um, <laughs> uh, so look, I, I, I I'll just mention all the uh, all the protests that are happening uh, tomorrow. So there's we have the we have the one in Alice Spring, 10, 10 a.m. Court Lawns, the one in Brisbane, King George Square, uh, Sydney, 10 a.m. Town Hall, Melbourne, Parliament Steps, 10 a.m. and Perth Thursday, uh, the 12th at 12 p.m. So it's happening all over the country. You know, I, I really think get involved, uh, you know, show your support. Um, and also, you know, for non-Indigenous people that are coming along, um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate, you know, the solidarity. And I'd really love for you to take the conversations back to your own communities, you know, um, and, and having these conversations um, around, you know, how Black Lives Matter uh, and, and what you can do with your Indigenous friends, colleagues, uh, you know, people that you study with, etc. I think reach out, you know, create relationships because that's how we're going to create change. All right. Well, um, thank you um, very much, um, Keith. And now just for, I'll just make a mention of it for our Melbourne listeners. So for Melbourne listeners tomorrow, there's going to be the Stop Black Deaths in Custody rally is going to be happening at 1pm outside the Parliament House on Saturday in Melbourne. So that's just off um, Spring Street or off Burke Street um, in, in, the, in the city. So, yeah, hope um, our listeners um, can get along to that rally and to also tell um, your friends, um, family and anyone you might know in your networks about the rally too. There is a Facebook event for it on up on the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance um, Facebook page. Program with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Well, we might, um, you're listening to Green Left, um, radio and, um, we'll just go play a quick interview and then move on to the next part of the program. All right. I want to try smooth, not bomb. I've 
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road, and I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, now it is time for the activist calendar. Now, to start off, um, we announced this event before, but I might as well kind of announce it again. Um, there is going to be um, the Stop um, the National Day of Action, um, Stop Black Deaths in Custody, 30 years since the um, since the Royal Commission, and that's going to be happening um, happening on 1 p.m. at the outside the Parliament House in Melbourne on Saturday. Now, the next um, event I want to also announce is. On Monday, April the 12th, there's going to be a public forum or False Bridges, the Shroof on Temporary Visas. Um, this is going to be an evening forum organised by Refugee Action Collective um, to hear the stories of refugees living on temporary visas, um, the organisations that support them and the legal advocates fighting for change. Um, this meeting will be both in person at the Kathleen Syme Library and broadcast over Zoom. And so, yeah, you can get um, details on how to register for it. It's going to be at 6.30pm at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre and also via Zoom um, on Monday, this Monday, um, 6.30pm. And on Wednesday, April the 14th, um, there's going to be an p- online forum organised by Green Left um, titled The Fight for a Just Transition to Green Jobs. And basically this forum is going to be having a bit of discussion on having a bit of an, what is kind of urgently needed to chart the way forward to a just transition um, for, to green jobs. And it features a range of speakers from Lock the, um, Lock, um, Lock the Gate, uh, the Maritime Union of Sydney, um, the Construction Union of um, the CFMU, and also featuring uh, our Melbourne speaker, um, a Victorian speaker, Tim Gooden, who is a construction, forestry, mining, maritime union um, delegate in Geelong and part of the Environmental Jobs Alliance, um, Jobs Alliance Geelong EJAG. So that's on Wednesday, 6.30pm, April the 14th. Now, the next, um, another event to, to note is um, going to be a public forum, um, Repression and Resistance in Myanmar slash um, Burma. This is going to be happening in the Red and Orange Room in the Melbourne's Multicultural Hub. And it's going to be a public forum. Um, you know, the description is, despite the massive use of lethal force by the military in Myanmar slash Burma, people are still coming out to protest in the cities, towns and villages against the military coup. This is the civil disobedience movement. Workers also organised a one-day general strike on February um, 22nd. So this is going to be a discussion um, to discuss the kind of ongoing struggle against the military coup and how we can stand in solidarity with this with the protest movement resisting repression. So that's happening 6.30pm Thursday, April the 15th at the Red and Orange Room at Melbourne's Multicultural Hub. Now, the next, um, let me just go, and 
another some other events that are coming up is on Friday, um, April the 30th, there's going to be a Welcome Refugees um, Freedom um, Celebration Barbecue. And this is going to be organised by the Victorian Trades Hall um, at 6.30 um, at 6.30 p.m. on Friday. And, um, yeah, um, 6.30 p.m. Friday on the 30th of April. So it's um, a number of kind of weeks from kind of now. And now the next, some other events that I was going to note down. I'm just trying to find the details. Oh, yes. So there's going to be um, an end detention student walkout from May 5th to March the 5th, organised by RISE, Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees. Um, so that's going to be happening on May the 5th, 1pm at the State, State Library. There's going to be another rally organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism on Saturday, May the 8th um, at 2pm, which is titled Rally, Keep Fighting with Refugees and Mandatory Detention Now. So it's going to be happening at 2pm at the State Library. And then on May the 22nd, um, there's going to be a Nakba rally, 73 years of Israeli colonisation might end. And that's happening on Saturday, 22nd of May at 2pm. And also, I think as far as I know, Early on, there's going to be a May Day rally on May the 2nd um, on Sunday. Um, but, yeah, details are, a bit, are going to be forthcoming on that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty much it in terms of um, in terms of events that are coming up. Um, I'll just quick make a quick note um, that... Um, 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 Green Left is also still in its... Um, it's going through its um, 30th anniversary... And I would like to encourage if for any of our listeners, um, who are listening, um, if you, um, to consider, if you like our work, to consider becoming a supporter. It's only like $5 a month, um, to get, um, to become a supporter of Green Left. And yeah, you can go become a supporter by going on our website at greenleft.org.au. Now, we're probably going to be going into our third interview for the program now. Um, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement and you, you, and then we'll be proceeding with our interview. So you are listening to, um, Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line, we are very happy to have 
Alan Jennings, who is a journalist with Green Left, and he's also had experience in terms um, in that he has he has previously lived in Myanmar for over kind of five years. So we're going to be having a discussion with Alan, and this is drawing on some of the articles he's written for Green Left, where he's kind of spoken about written about um, the kind of links, um, the kind of examining the kind of economic ties that this kind of military regime, the military regime in Myanmar has to um, Australian mining companies and other kind of capitalist kind of interests. Um, So, yeah, good morning, Alan. Morning, Jacob. Now, um, I guess to start off, I guess, this discussion for our listeners, um, in an article you wrote for Green Left in February, you've um, you alluded to the military regime, which has been responsible for this um, m- military coup, um, has had as having kind of particular economic interests um, tied to their rule. And I guess, what can you tell us about the background to this? Yeah, well, I think I mean people know that um, the country was run by the military for about fifty years, fifty odd years, and in that time, they actually managed to will use that power to to build up a real empire of, of businesses, own private businesses, which um, literally own by and benefit um, the military, especially the elite in the military and uh, and former military as well, who have a special place in that. Um, and to just give you some idea of the businesses that they own, there's about there's two main conglomerates of businesses, about 140 different businesses. They're massive. And this includes two banks, one of the biggest banks in the country, um, lots of businesses within construction. And, of course, if the Ministry of Defence is building something or, you know, um, you know making a road or whatever, they'll, they'll uh, contract their own companies and the profits will go into their own pockets. Um, in tourism, in hotels, in land, um, and of the... 140 businesses, about 40 or 50 of them are in mining, and this is where they make most of their money, um, particularly in the uh, mines for rubies and um, and jade, which is you know some of the biggest uh, money-making businesses in the world, and even to the extent that um, the most popular beer, popular um, you know locally made beer in the country, Myanmar beer, is owned by the military, so. It's a real wide range of businesses they have, and, and, and literally the, the conglomerate they have is the biggest private business in the country. Hmm. And um, I just got to get guess the kind of next question is, going back to the military coup, um, are there kind of, can there be links made between this coup that has been, um, that has been carried out by this military regime and, I guess, their economic kind of interests in the region? Was there a particular conflict between the, um, the, um, the actual government, um, the actual government in power and, of course, the actual military in the, in the side? Yeah, no, that's a really, um, I suppose interesting and maybe contentious point because uh, even though, you know, the, the, the NLD, the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, won elections in 2015, ostensibly moving to a more democratic uh, process in, in uh, 2015, um, really the military's uh, businesses haven't been touched um, and affected so much over these last five years. Um, 
However, with the electoral victory again in November last year, um, uh, and with an increased majority, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi's party won um, 83% of the seats, a massive, you know, landslide in anyone's, you know, language. The, certainly the, um, the military would have been concerned about um, losing some of their ill-gotten gains and perhaps having more foreigners, more um, emboldened NLD scrutinising their business deals and maybe affecting their profits. And I feel sure that this, um, this is one of the major reasons for the coup right now. Um, there's another factor that the head of the military... Um, Min Aung Hang, who's now, you know, uh, the, the leader of the country, if you like, um, he has to retire within six months. And in, in, this may be an attempt also for his personal, you know, to maintain his personal assets and gains. Um, because they made up all these uh, ridiculous reasons for the coup. Firstly, they did a Trump-like um, action saying that the elections were rigged and weren't effective, and we all know that's just fake. And, and then they said there were some charges against Anton Chuchi. And everybody knows these are trumped up. So um, it seems like the, the main reason for the coup is for the military to keep their hands on their ill-gotten gains. Hmm. And I guess the, the next um, thing to note is... In your article, um, I want to kind of bring it to, I guess, Australia. You note that many um, Australian mining companies have um, historical ties to the military regime. And, of course, one of the things as well to note is our own government um, wasn't that quick to condemn the coup. I mean, coup. I mean they're condemning it now, but historically, um, but just recently, they took quite a while um, to actually change the position because previously the Australian government has had a lot of support um, for the military um, regime and or, or the uh, or the military in Myanmar in general, and I guess what has I guess been um, the position I guess of both our government and I guess these Australian mining companies in response to these kind of ongoing human right um, relation, human rights violations that have been carried out by the military in Myanmar. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch. Um... Uh, firstly, on the mining companies, um, there's a number of mining companies um, active in, in Myanmar and uh, probably the best known one is Woodside Energy. Woodside, you know, obviously the Perth-based company is Australia's biggest mining company. Um, now, Woodside has um, is has a licence for um, drilling for li- liquid, liquid gas um, in the Rakhine Basin, which is just off Rakhine. State. And initially they said, and the CEO said, look, you know, we're going to carry on um, after the coup. Um, we don't really know if the accusations that the military has about the elections is correct or not. Basically, you just justified the coup. Um, and that received a really big backlash, uh, both here and in, in Myanmar. Um, and here there was, there was protests in Perth against, uh, by the Myanmar community in Australia. And um, lots of, uh, you know, feedback, uh, to put it mildly, to Woodside about that. And um, they actually were forced to change their tack. And um, they actually have now said, and to me it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing, they've now said they're going to 
pull back on their uh, you know development in in Myanmar and um, and just see until things settle down now really that's not good enough they should say until you know democracy is restored but uh, at least they've uh, they've pulled back a little bit and basically it's been the sort of activists and the um, you know ACTU in this case in Australia that uh, has has written to them and asked them to do that so they've they've bowed to pressure um, there's other mining companies which um, really have done nothing um, to condemn the coup or uh, halt their you know their actions um, there's another big mining company called the Myanmar Metals which is an Australian company and several others which have licenses for dig uh, for dig for dig uh, for minerals um, the Australian government has been really pathetic on this um, they haven't really even condemned the coup I mean basically that what they've done is stopped their development assistance to the military. I mean, that is nothing. I mean, they should have done that well before the coup. Why would they give development assistance to a an organisation which is which the UN calls, uh, you know, a gen- you know, responsible for genocide and human rights violations, um, uh, specifically against the Rohingya? Um, this is well before the coup um, several years ago and ongoing. Um, so they should be really um, forcing the Australian companies to not have anything to do with the Myanmar military. Um, I mean, even the United States, the United Kingdom have done that. They've actually sanctioned the military-owned companies and not allowed their businesses to relate to them. Um, and to to trade with them. So, um, you know, the Australian government's been really pathetic. It's really been weak. And if you look at the statement from the foreign minister, it's, it's, it almost says nothing. Okay. Well, now the the kind of last kind of question, I guess, um, is taking in everything you've kind of, kind of said about some of these the economic ties um, that this the military regime have in kind of Myanmar, um, the links with Australian mining companies and other kind of international kind of capital. What has, I guess, been the kind of broad kind of international kind of response to kind of all these kind of issues um, and what what has been the sort of arguments that have kind of been put forward? And especially in response, what has been the response of some of these other countries, um, not just Australia, to to the military coup? Well, um, not surprisingly, the main trading partners with Myanmar are the neighbouring countries. And we're talking about the biggest countries on earth here. India on one side, China, you've got Thailand there, um, and to a lesser extent, Japan, Singapore, uh, other Asian countries. Um and I just mentioned one example here. There's one company that we all know of, Adani, which is Indian Indian-based com- country uh, company building coal mines in Queensland. Um, Adani has an ongoing agreement with the military, directly with the military company, $290 million contract giving to the military to build a port in Yangon, and um, they have. Clearly stated, and they've been on the on the back foot on this as well. Say that they're going to continue in this because they're doing nothing wrong. Um, uh, and uh, um, however, there are other countries who have who've, uh, you know come to their senses, if you like. There's, there's a, the Jap- Japanese um, 
beer company, which was in, in cohorts with the military on, on Myanmar beer. They pulled out Kirin, the name of them, their name. Um, so there's been a mixed uh, reaction. Um, but the, in, the activists in Myanmar are saying that most of the money that comes to the military comes through mining, comes through extractive industries. And um, there's a simple request, stop giving money to the military. And um, so they're really calling for Australian mining companies and others as well, as particularly the European ones, to stop giving money to the military through royalties and through direct relations with the military companies. Very simple. Um, they don't want to stop all trade altogether. They don't want to sanction everything, but targeted sanctions against every company that is related to the military, including the Cronin company. Okay. Well, um, thanks for that, Alan. Um, we're kind of running a bit low on time now, but do you, ha- I guess, have any kind of final comments um, you'd like to make? Um, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's really sad for me to see that for what's happening there. But, but in many ways, it's it's um, it's uh, exciting to see. It's not exciting, but you know, um, encouraging to see the 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 strength, the resilience of particularly the youth in Myanmar who are fighting against this this regime, um, and every day on the streets, even though you know they're risking their lives, it's really. Um, um, in, incredible to see that, um, and we should be supporting them in any way we can. And one way we can do it is to ensure that our government and our companies, you know, Australian companies and others, are not supporting this, um, you know, genocidal regime. Hmm. Okay, very well um, said, Alan. I think that's a, a good kind of way to end it. And, um, yeah, thanks for um, being on our program. And um, just for listeners' information, um, Alan will be speaking um, at a public forum being organised by Green Left, um, which is going to be happening next Thursday at 6.30pm at the Red and Green Room at the Multicultural Hub, where we'll be, he'll be, Alan will be part of a panel of speakers discussing um, the coup in Myanmar and what we can do to kind of stand in solidarity with um, the protesters resisting um, the military coup. All right. Well, um, thanks again, Alan, and um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we'll go play a quick announcement and um, go and go on to the kind of rest of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we we're just interviewing Alan Jennings um, about the economic kind of interests um, that the military regime in Burma slash Myanmar have in the region, and the kind of implications kind of for that. Now we're getting to um, the end of our program. Um, me and um, Chloe, um, we'd like to thank um, all our listeners um, for tuning in um, this week, and we hope to all see you. Or we w- we won't be seeing you because we can't see you anyway. We don't know. Um, we don't know who our listeners are, but we'd like to just thank all our listeners. We're imagining uh, you uh, for tuning in this week, um, and that um, you can stay tuned for us um, next Friday at seven a.m. on every Friday. So, yep, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Bye. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com. Dot org dot au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Better time than now. Oh, hey.